Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. It's a question that I've seen posed all over the place on GB News by Thomas Piketty, the French economist, even in the In Gold We Trust report. But I am yet to have a satisfactory answer. Why can't central bankers just buy all the debt? That is the question. And I'm joined by the investment director of UK Independent Wealth, Rob Marstrand, to try and answer it for me. Now, I'm especially interested in Rob's answer because he is in Argentina. And Argentina is sort of a response to the question in and of itself, isn't it, Rob? Yeah, hi, Nick. Well, absolutely. I'll come on to Argentina in a minute. But in, an, in answer to your question, why can't central bankers just buy all the debt? In a nutshell, I would say the answer is because even stupid people would then realize that they are directly financing the government. So they're paying for the government's lack of money for all its you know, profligate spending. Now, as things stand, whether it's the Bank of England, the Fed, or whichever other country is, is up to this, or central bank is up to this, they have plausible deniability, you might say. So they can, by using the sort of smoke and mirrors of funneling money through banks, which then buy bonds from someone else, which then, you know, flows it through, da, 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 you know, they can claim that it's something else, that it's to do with controlling the yield curve or stimulating the economy, da, da, da. But the reality is the money eventually flows to the government through the smoke and mirrors. Now, how do we know that? Well, let's, let's look at two extremes and consider those. So if the, if the central banks, like the Bank of England, do absolutely zero QE, so they're buying no gilts, so no government bond securities, then it's very, very clear that they're not financing the government directly. If they're to buy 100% and nobody else is buying the new debt that the government issues, it's very, very clear that they're 100% financing the deficit of the government, you know, the, the budget deficit. Now, where we are now, we're somewhere in the middle. I don't know what the, what the number is exactly today, but I think it's probably around 40%-ish of all the government debt is owned by the Bank of England, something of that order. Um, so it's fair to say we're somewhere between not financing anything of the deficit and financing all of the deficit. So I would argue they're financing a large portion of the deficit. But still, a number of people think, well, it's okay because it's all through the, you know, it's through the bond markets. It's not directly truckloads of cash driven from the Bank of England over to uh, number 11 Downing Street for Rishi, Rishi Sunak to use. So that's my view anyway. The part of that that fascinates me is it used to be uncertain whether central banks are financing governments, whether central banks are buying government bonds to finance the government, or whether they're doing it as part of their monetary policy as, as they like to claim. But I think over the last few years, especially because of COVID, it has become almost blatantly obvious that central banks are and do finance the, the governments of the world. That's especially obvious in places that inside the Eurozone. I think they're buying more than the net issuance of government debt, uh, the ECB is. And also we had the Ways and Means Facility of the Bank of England financing the government. And I think it was the, the Bank of England governor or the treasurer who said that if the, the central bank had not supported the government during those initial months of the COVID pandemic, then the government could have gone bust. So I think we're, we're a step beyond that. I think we're, we're now in this world where people have acknowledged that central bankers are financing governments. They have this plausible deniability still because they're also doing it to conduct monetary policy. But the net effect is clear in my view. What's wrong with it though? Why can't this not just finance 40% of the government's deficit, but 100% like in parts of the Eurozone, 
or even more why can't they just bail out the banking system as well and and why not the housing you know the, the mortgage debt as well and the student loans and everything why can't central bankers just buy all of the debt what's wrong with it well maybe i'll come back to that in a second but let's just step back to to when they started this whole process just very briefly so the emergency qe after the after the global financial crisis so when they started in you know whenever it was 09 2010 um the issue was that the banks themselves the commercial banks were in such dire straits that they were shrinking their balance sheets and that meant that the deposits in the system the loans and the deposits in the banking system were going down you know, the ones that are created in the ordinary course of events so the qe money that was printed by the bank of england and the fed and everyone else created deposits out of thin air and those deposits now i would argue that that was always funding government in, indirectly but that money goes to the government the government then spends it and there goes back into the economy and it goes into private hands whether it's cut you know companies initially that support or, the, or employees the people that work in the government they get paid their salary they get their money and then they go off and spend it on other things so that props up the system and it kept the deposits level and or growing a little bit but now we've got to a point where the commercial banks are fixed essentially they're making good profits if you look at lloyds bank or you know other uk banks in the first half of this year they're making good profits for the first time in over a decade that means they're in great shape to expand their balance sheets again and increase lending and increase the money supply so now you've got the private sector can now increase the money supply and you've got the central banks still rapidly increasing the money supply so deposits are going up at quite a clip now that becomes inflationary now going back to your question we can explore inflation further if you want but going back to your question why don't you do it well you don't do it because history tells us that when central banks have a, a free reign just to print as much money as they like for the government, um, then you get high inflation and or hyperinflation. Now, as you mentioned, I'm in Argentina. Inflation rate is about 50% a year. That's five zero. So people panicking when inflation goes from 2% to 2.1 or 2.3 or 2.4. Here, it's Will this month be annualized at 30, 40, 50, 60%? What was inflation last year? Now, that's been going on for about the last, well, I would say five years, probably a little bit more than that. Although at various points, the government does you know, lie even more than other governments about the numbers. But why does that happen? I mean, the, the central bank literally, as part of this process, the central bank literally does just create pesos, which are the local currency, and hand them to the government. And the government goes out and spends them on uh, well most of it gets spent on welfare down here unfortunately um but uh that creates inflation and um you know it's the inevitable consequence when you have too much money chasing too few things you get uh, a devaluing currency and and rapid price rises and you know more extreme versions happen in places like venezuela uh we've seen zimbabwe in the past you know where you could used to be able to get a hundred trillion dollar zimbabwean dollar note which was absolutely worthless this is what happens when when central banks have free reign to print money, uh, the currency devalues and you get inflation. One of the most interesting ways that I've heard you speak about this or refer to this is that the UK and the US and, and the developed world, we are now following the playbook of failed states. The idea that this is how usually less well-governed nations get things wrong. They have a, a central bank which is you know, nominally independent of the government, but the government gets in such strife financially and economically that the central banker is forced to choose between either bankrupting the government 
or going along with the government spending and triggering inflation. And it seems to me we're at the same threshold now in the UK, in the US and in Europe, where central bankers face that same choice. Are they going to finance the government or are they going to let the government go bust in order to protect their, their inflation mandate? Which way do you think they would choose in the end? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, look, they've painted themselves into a corner years ago. Um, essentially, all, pretty much, or no, I'd say all uh, developed countries, or meaningfully sized developed countries anyway, have very, very high debt burdens, both in the public sector and the private sector. So governments, households, corporations, all have very high debt. Now, to control inflation, if it takes off, what you have to do is you have to try and contain the money supply. And you usually achieve that by raising interest rates, which, which sort of cuts off demand for, for new borrowing, <clears throat> essentially. Um, and obviously, in this, case, in this case, you'd have to stop QE, which is another way of inflating the money supply. Now, the problem is, if, if interest rates go up and if the bond market normalizes, so, so in, the, in the normal world, bond yields, government bond yields, should be inflation plus something. So they should be, you know, let's say if inflation is running at two and a half percent a year, you'd expect to make one and a half to two percent above that so that you get a real, as in above inflation, return on your, on your money. Currently, they're so, the yields are so compressed by the, the hundreds of billions or trillions that these central banks have been printing around the world that bond investors uh, make less than inflation. They're kind of guaranteed almost, uh, unless we get massive deflation, which is unlikely. But they, they make essentially negative real returns, so below inflation. Now, if the, if the bond market normalizes and yields go back to where they historically were, which is this sort of 1.5% to 2% above inflation, the bond market crashes. Corporate borrowing becomes expensive. Mortgages become very expensive. All types of lending becomes very expensive. And the economy crashes. So what central bank wants to be responsible for that? And, and because rates are so low, because we're talking ultra low, you know, what, what's the average mortgage rate in the UK these days? Probably around 2% a year, something like that, which, you know, is, is absurd. I, you know, I remember, you know, back in the early 80s, people were borrowing in the, in the teens. Now, imagine borrowing goes from, on your mortgage, goes from 2%, let's say interest rates go up by just 1%. So your, your mortgage goes from 2% to 3%. Well, suddenly everyone's interest bill on their mortgage goes up by half. Let's say interest rates go up by a mere two percentage points. Your mortgage goes from 2% to 4%. Your mortgage cost doubles. Now, given that the highly inflated property market and the huge mortgages that people have taken out over 30, 40 years in many cases, that's going to do a lot of damage to the economy. So what's the, what's the, uh, what's the central bank to do? Well, it's at, or the government going to encourage the central bank to do? Well, it's obviously much more tempting to say, well, let's let inflation run a little bit. Let's, let's deflate the debt away a little bit. Let's, let's let wages go up a bit faster. Let's let prices go up a bit faster. And that, that 100,000 pound mortgage that somebody has suddenly in real terms becomes worth a little bit less. It's only 80,000 in five years time or whatever. Um, so I, I suspect they're more likely to let inflation run a bit, but keep the language along the lines of it's temporary, it won't last long, it's not a big deal. There are special factors, blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, yeah, while they're doing this, everyone's busy sitting on their, their inflatable boat on, the, on a big river, sitting in the, in the nice calm area. 
but they're heading towards the rapids and they're about to go off the cliff. And one day, all these countries have to go off the cliff because if you keep printing money, you keep adding debt, and you don't get to grips with this, while you've got aging populations demanding bigger pensions and more healthcare and all the rest of it, one day the, the numbers just won't add up and the whole thing is going to spiral out, spiral out of control. Timing that, difficult, but that's the way we're heading, I think. You've mentioned those extremely low bond yields, especially relative to inflation. I think today I, I saw that the German 10-year bond yield adjusted for inflation is minus 4.25%. Um, so it's an absurd level that cannot last. Now, there's two possible explanations for that as far as I can see. One is financial repression, which basically just means that central banks are keeping bond yields very low in order to try and help governments finance their debt. And the other explanation is that we're headed for uh, a deflationary debt crisis, a classic 2008-style crash. Uh, you, do you think that's plausible? Because that creates another possible sequence of events here that's very different, almost the complete opposite to the inflation that we've been talking about. Well, I think I think it's possible to have another... Well, actually, no, I think it's probable to have another big financial crisis in the Western world. I think uh, 2008 was a wake-up call. People had become very, very complacent because nothing really bad had happened um, for, for decades, um, except in emerging markets where everyone think, you know, thinks that's likely to happen. Um, but it will be a very different type of crisis. So 2008 was a leverage problem in that there was a lot of debt in the system, massively leveraged assets, speculative bubbles in real estate and, and all sorts of other things, bonds and all the rest of it. And the banks were far too leveraged. Uh, you know, I used to work for a big bank and uh, their balance sheet was leveraged over 50 times, which is just, a, just nuts. So the ratio of their assets to their capital was 50 times. I think they're now down to about 20. So, so the point being that the, the banks were in much better shape. There are actually lots of things changed that forced them to be safer than they used to be in general terms. So I don't think it'll be a bank problem. But it could be a, a government uh, finances problem. So if you have a government that has enormous debt, as all of them do, the UK's debt now must be around 100% of GDP. I, I'm not sure which side of that exactly it is, but it's, it's around that mark. Um, now, the UK does have one good thing going for it is that a lot of that's quite long dated. But if you have a government which has a lot of short dated debt, so it's debt that it has to pay back within a few months, a year, a couple of years. When you get to that point where it has to pay back the money and reborrow to, to have the funds to do that repayment, if it has to reborrow at a higher interest rate than it, than it had before, then suddenly the interest bill starts rocketing. And we could get this kind of death spiral of, of governments getting in trouble, investors realizing they're in trouble, demanding higher interest rates, as in higher bond yields to lend them money, meaning governments have higher interest bills, which means investors realize their finances are even worse, which means they demand even higher yields on their bonds. And you get this death spiral of governments having to pay more and more interest. And then you're in real trouble. And then you're, then you're getting into the point where you may not just have inflation, you may have very sharp, sudden devaluations of currencies. So, you know, on a Monday, you might find that the pound is trading at, you know, 139 to the dollar. And on the, you know, on the Tuesday, you might find that it's trading at, you know, only $1 rather than 139. So, you know, who knows? One of the most interesting ways that I've heard you speak about this or refer to this is that the UK and the US and, and the developed world we are now following the playbook of failed states. The idea that this is how usually less well-governed nations 
get things wrong. They have a, a central bank, which is you know nominally independent of the government, but the government gets in such strife financially and economically that the central banker is forced to choose between either bankrupting the government or going along with the government spending and triggering inflation. And it seems to me we're at the same threshold now in the UK, in the US and in Europe, where central bankers face that same choice. Are they going to finance the government or are they going to let the government go bust in order to protect their, their inflation mandate? Which way do you think they would choose in the end? Well, at the moment, I think we need to uh, watch the monthly inflation statistics that are reported, which themselves have some issues, and I, I don't think they're particularly accurate. But the, the general direction of travel, um, you know, not just what's happened over the last year, but what's happening month to month, is is the trend rising or, or, or slowing? Because we've already seen, um, you know, annual inflation rates in the US of over five percent, um, and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the remainder of this year and into next year. And the and you know, a large part of that. The reason for that is, is not just that commodity markets have been volatile, but that um, the money supply in the US has absolutely rocketed over the last year, much more than the UK, actually. I mean, UK has a problem, but the US is, is much more extreme. Um, so that's one thing to look at. Um, I think also we need to look at, going back to those commodities, and look at gold and look at silver and precious metals, that type of thing, because... As you say, all the, all the currencies might be um, devaluing at the same time. So let's let's benchmark them against real things. Farmland could be another thing. If you suddenly see the price of that rocketing, then that would be a sign that these currencies are losing value. So this also presents a, a problem for the for investors, of course, because over half of the world's stock markets by value are US. Probably if you look at most people's pension funds or how they're holding their savings, most people will have quite a lot in the US market. And the US market is trading at very expensive levels, in my opinion. And I think I don't think that's a controversial view at this point. So it's it's entirely possible that that might might fall off or you know, have a severe sharp correction at some point if there's a loss of confidence for some reason. Bonds offer dreadful value and are at risk of again, losing money sharply if, if yields start going up, if there's a, some sort of panic in there. Uh, moving into foreign currencies is, has its problems because if they're all in the same place, then what's the point of moving into other weak, other weak currencies? There may be one or two exceptions, but uh, you know, not too many. Um, so what are you left with? Well, you're left with real assets. So I would say you know, everyone, for my money, should have at least a chunk of money in sort of gold, and maybe other, some other selected commodities and, or the producers of those um, just as a, as a hedge for the worst happening. And we don't know when that's going to happen, but uh, you know, it, it could happen at any time, really. If, if they continue down this route, they continue down this route, governments overspending and central banks printing money with impunity, well, eventually they're going to get punished. And so will people that haven't haven't taken steps to protect themselves ahead of that. I quite like the sound of governments getting punished. Unfortunately, it's investors and, of course, the taxpayer who ends up paying for all of this. Rob Marstrand, you're the editor of UK Independent Wealth. Thanks very much for joining us. And to the people watching at home, if you're interested in more of what Rob has to say and you'd like to check out UK Independent Wealth, there'll be a link below this video to find out more about Rob and what he has to say. Thanks very much for watching.